The following sermon is brought to you by thepreachersvault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. Okay, go ahead and take your Bibles and open with me the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 2 and verse 2 is where we're going to get to here in just a moment. I've told you so many times already I realize uh, that when you're breaking down the book of Philippians, you can do that in various and different ways and I tend to do that pretty often. Every time I read it just about, I make slight adjustments to my mental outlines and you know where I place those divisions and such, but there's also an undeniable fact of the way that God has divided the text up, and especially when it comes to taking a view of it as if we were standing back looking at paragraphs in, say, a paper or some kind of a, a dissertation that we're reading across. A lot of times paragraphs will contain one thought and then move on to another, and then, of course, as we do in the English, a paragraph would swap and, and flip, and that's sort of kind of, uh, that's my disclaimer, just sort of kind of, uh, what has been done here in God's Word. Of course, we're not reading it directly in the original language. We're being read, uh, being able to examine it through the English, so it's been translated, obviously. And uh, sometimes the translators take some liberty, maybe they should not. Uh, sometimes they seem to nail it. And if you want to see even your translation you have in front of you, a lot of times you'll have some extra guides, things like headings or subheadings you might notice that are in some translations, some printings at least, and those can be pretty good guides as well. Said so all of that to remind you that basically chapter 1 and verse 27 through chapter 2 and verse 11 make up one major idea. Now there's subheadings to that. I've continued to divide that up even more. Uh, but it, they make up one major idea. And it has to do with two words you can put for your memory's sake. One has to do with unity. And the second one has to do with humility. And really... Unity cannot exist where humility is absent. Now, that may take some thinking, and it took me some thinking to come up with it, but unity cannot exist in the absence of humility. Because as humans, we're going to, we're going to have our own battles, our own discussions, our own disagreements, our own wars among us at times, and a lot of times all that comes down to is ourselves being selfish and wanting things to go our way and not being able to be you know, uh, agreeable with someone or to allow someone to have their own liberty. Now, we know in our society today, uh, just that last phrase there has been totally taken out of proportion to the point that we are being told every day in one form or another that everybody can have their own opinion. They're entitled to their own opinion. You better stay away from it. Well, that may be a little bit true among humans, but obviously if we all allow God to be our guide, we would know the ultimate conclusion is that God has the only opinion that matters, and therefore if we're going to form an opinion, it had better be formed on God's Word. And so there has to be unity amongst humility. Basically, it's what I've, just as a brand new heading, put over chapter 1, verses 27 through chapter 2 and verse 11. And we'll make mention of that here a little bit more. But just to start the reading there in verse 27, not to comment on it very much, let your conversation, matter of life, be as it becometh of the gospel of Christ, where I come and see you, or else I be absent, that you may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit. And this is how I kind of divide this. He gets this mindset going right here. That you may stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, 
and let no, and in nothing be terrified by your adversaries. They had enemies in that day, and many of them were quickly becoming enemies of the church, ultimately enemies of God. He says, and let in nothing be terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation, and that, that is the salvation, is that of God. Verse 29, for unto you is given in behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. And of course, this is just another one of those reminders, and there are many of them throughout the New Testament scattered around, that unfortunately, it seems for our benefit, and I say that because I think the way every other human does, that seemingly, unfortunately, we have to suffer. If we're going to live Christian lives, we're going to have to suffer. We're going to have to face some things. We're going to have to uh, have adversaries, have enemies. Uh, not that we necessarily see them in that light, but they will see us in that. And it very much reminds me of what Jesus said on a couple of occasions. The first one that came to mind was Matthew chapter 10, verse 22, where Jesus said basically that we're going to be hated for his namesake. Uh, why is that Jesus? Because he was hated. If we're going to act like Christ, we're going to be treated like Christ to some extent. Now, hopefully that won't include crucifixion, uh, but if and, if and when it would, we would have to be prepared for the same. And so that's what he mentions here, that you, you're going to have to believe on him or have faith in him, to trust in him, but also be willing to suffer in the way that he did or for his sake. Verse 30, having the same conflict which ye saw in me, and now ye hear to be in me. And continuous reminder, Paul is in prison. He's been placed into prison basically for standing for the cause of Christ, and that has put him in the midst of conflict. Now, I've thought about this so many times and thought, well, you know, all those people that were against Paul, he's mentioned them back up above this, much above this, all the way back into chapter 1 and verse 13, up down to this, but he's mentioned people who have stood against him, who had had strife against him, who have had uh, ulterior motives even to their preaching that would stand against him. Those that I'm assuming, and this is just for imagination and illustration's sake, are standing back and, and pointing fingers and say, well, look at there what Paul got himself into. And uh, so they were seemingly getting themselves in a position to be the latest and the greatest popular preacher in the area. Uh, he, he mentions the fact of what their attitudes were, what their uh, supposed motives were, and that kind of seems to be the case, especially when you get into verse 18 and 19 of chapter 1, right off the page for me. But Paul was having to strive. He was in conflict with some of these people. But when we boil that all down, who is Paul, same thing for us, who is Paul actually in conflict with? Who's behind that? The devil. Satan is behind that. So the conflict that exists is between Paul or any of us Christians. The reason why we have conflict and strive is because ultimately we're striving with the devil. And oftentimes I refer to people as being or, uh, the devil and talk about the devil and his cohorts or the people that work along beside him and that sort of thing. So there's a striving together. There's a conflict that exists as well. And to illustrate that a little bit farther, and this, this may not be. Now, sometimes I say things that uh, after I think about it, they're not right. And if I can remember to do that, I'll correct myself. But this may not be a complete across-the-board illustration that applies itself in every situation. But the way I feel is the majority of situations you could say about yourself, 
you might see it in someone else. If a person is not in conflict with Satan, it is because they're in collusion with him. We're either going to be in conflict with Satan or we're going to be in collusion with him. We're either going to be facing him on the road and running headlong into him at times, having to fight him, having to prevent ourselves you know, from sin by reflecting back on God and reflecting back on his word and using his strength and his power and his confidence. Or if we don't find ourselves in conflict, it may be because we've just gotten in line with him. And, and I don't know how well that completely illustrates itself, but I know in my life, and this may be just one of those throw-up-your-hand situations where you come up with something to try to get yourself in the right mindset, but in my life, at the times when I have been in the wrong or, or been in a situation where I know I'm not completely and fully on board with doing what God has commanded, it, those are the times sometimes when you seem to boast and coast. You go along, you're like, well, you know, life has been a lot easier lately, and I don't, you know, I don't, I'm not having any issues. It may be because that's just what God has, has blessed you with at the moment. It could also be because you're not in conflict, or I'm not in conflict with Satan. And so that conflict that exists there in verse 30. Now, Paul steps in, verse 31, by inspiration and through, this, through the pen of his hand, and he says, If there be therefore any consolation... In Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any the bowels of mercy, verse 2, fulfill ye my joy. So again, I, I said this, I know on last week, maybe the week before, as we were beginning to crawl into chapter 2. When you see the word if right here, it is what is known in the Greek as a first class conditional which basically means, even though it looks like if, as in maybe, maybe not, it really means since. It's assumed to be true. It's somewhat of like Paul is making rhetorical type of statements. He's saying things that there's really no question if they're really uh, potential or possible. Because when we answer those questions as if they were, is there any? You can put the word is in just for thinking about it. Is there any consolation in Christ? Yes, there is. Yes, there's comfort in Christ. Yes, there's, in the literal word there, there's the idea of, of Christ or God with His arm around us, encouraging us, trying to uplift us, trying to uphold us, trying to give us confidence and boldness. So there is consolation. Is there any comfort in love? Yeah, there's, there's comfort in love, particularly the type of love that's mentioned here. The Greek word here is agapo, or agape is the other form we normally hear of that, depending on noun or verb. But the word love right here means kind of like an unconditional type love, which is definitely possible with God, but all, not always doable with us. And so the type of love that is mentioned here, and it's why it comes out in the English phrase there, the comfort of love is because love itself can make someone comfortable. Feelings if we are loved can make someone comfortable in that sense of the word. And then he rhetorical statement slash you could put it in a question. Is there any fellowship of the Spirit? Yes, there should be. There ought to be. We ought to have fellowship with the Spirit of God. Of course, dividing the Godhead as they are. God the Father, God the Son. Oftentimes we refer to them in proper statements from John 1, 1 to 3 and 14. God the Word and then God as in the Spirit. So yes, there's fellowship in the Spirit. Are there any bowels, if any, bowels of mercy? Is there anything about us or among us to which we could find 
or note God's mercy, not only from him to us and us to him, but obviously between one another. Yes. Paul says, if that is possible, or since that is possible, more proper stated, then fulfill ye my joy. Now, I got to looking back and trying to examine some words, and I like my words, as you can notice, um, to re-examine some of these words, and the word fulfill right here is in, is in a tense where basically Paul is, is putting forth a command. He's telling them, and we'll see it in the next verse or two as well in different ideas of it, He's telling them directly, I need you or I command upon you to fulfill my joy. How, how is that going to be possible, Paul? What do you expect of us? Well, one, you back up the page, and it's the reason why you see if there be therefore. You back up the page and you understand that his joy is fulfilled when the things that occurred prior to this in the writing are taking place. When you look in the immediate context, which goes back again to verse 27, when you back up and read this in reverse, his joy is fulfilled when they recognize the mercy that God provides, when they recognize the fellowship that they can have among the Spirit, when they recognize the comfort that is found in love, the consolation that is found in Christ, when they recognize across the page the fact that, yes, there will be conflict, but in spite of that conflict, we're going to, in, in a sense as well, be able to be with Christ, verse 29, and find salvation, verse 28, and do that because of the faith that we have in the gospel, verse 27, and do that because of the fact, verse 27, the beginning of it, because we live a Christ-like life. So all these things boil out as a result. And I appreciate the scriptures, and I don't know that God intended this way, but you can oftentimes find it if you'll, if you'll take the time to do it. God's Word teaches just as well in reverse as it does moving forward. When you're reading through the Bible and you're getting down to a text, oftentimes as you read through that, you will learn as much and get as much benefit if you get to a place, especially where you're having difficulties, if you stop, it's really all about context, but if you stop and say, okay, what did he say before and before and before that? I think, for example, Ephesians chapter 5, and I don't have it all right in front of me thinking about it or even looking at it, but Ephesians chapter 5, the whole part about when he gets down toward the latter part of the chapter, verse 20-ish and forward, gets to talking about the relationship between a husband and wife in a marriage relationship. And of course, he reflects at the very end of that chapter that, hey, guess what? I talked to you a little bit about marriage, but I was really talking about the relationship of Christ and the church. He was just using examples of either side to prove the other. But people see the phraseology there, and particularly modern society would, and where it says, wives, submit yourselves unto your husband. They say, nah, I don't know about all I'm not, I'm not bowing down to him. Well, first of all, it doesn't mean that. You know that. But in addition to that, if you read the context and you find out how this husband, in theory, is to be treating his wife, how he's supposed to be reacting to her and loving her, then you should really step back and say, well, that'd be easy. I mean, that, not easy every moment and not every day, but that'd be easy to do. You know, if my husband loved me like Christ did and gave himself up, which is not just a stand in front of a, a, a bullet necessarily, it could be some application there, but that's not primary, but gives up his will to provide for my needs, uh, that's not that hard to submit to someone like that. So that's taking God's word, reading down the page, and then reading right back up the page and illustrating what is true about it. You can do that here. 
And so Paul starts out again, verse 2, Fulfill ye my joy. So he points at him and says, Fill my joy. Some translations, I think I mentioned last week, actually place the word cup in there. The word cup is not there. It's provided in those translations in italics. But Paul says, Fill my cup up. Overflow my cup, he says, with joy. That ye may be, and here's how this is possible, that ye be, number one, like-minded. Number two, having the same love. Number three, being of one accord. And number four, being of one mind. So there are four statements right here written in the one verse. There'll be another tied in the next verse. But four statements right here in verse two, written in verse two, that allows us to see how and why the Apostle Paul's joy could be full. Now, keeping in mind, and this is the case in every page from the front to the back, cover to cover, but keeping in mind again that God is breathing, inspiring these words to be written. And not that everything about every human applies back to God. Please don't quote me from your notes if that's what you're about to hear me say. But in a sense, and we need to understand, if God is inspiring these things, it's coming not from the mind, obviously, of the man, but from the mind of God. And so if Paul says, fill up my joy by doing this, 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 and that, there can be a connective assumption made to the fact that that too just might fill up God's joy. Not all-inclusive of what God wants, but just in some senses will fill up the joy of God. And if that is true, if the statements Paul is making would be considered of himself and then reflective on God, it should apply to us. My joy should be filled when I see not only myself, but my brethren able to be like-minded, to be of the same love, to be of one accord, and of one mind. Now, I suppose just standing back from that, we would all say, well, of course, that would, you know, that's ideal, that's nice. Well, at times, it's very easy, and this is where the rest of the context will come in, to be so selfish of myself. Well, I guess if you're selfish, you are selfish. But anyway, to be so self-centered to the point that I'm not considering anyone else's uh, situation, not considering anyone else's, um, you know, uh, deal, if you will, to the point where I, I'm not going to be like-minded with that person. I'm not going to be of the same love. I'm not going to be of one mind. Why? Because when I'm in self, when humility is lacking, unity is absent. Kind of, sort of, close kin to what I said in the very beginning. So these are the statements that he makes. Now, all of these statements are in what's called the, again, this is deeper than I really understand completely, but I saw this and trying to study through it, are in what's known as the present subjunctive, which means these things need to be happening, and if they're happening, they need to keep happening. And if any point they cease from happening, then guess what the back opposite other side of the coin is? Paul would say, I'm not filled with joy. I'm unhappy to hear. And in the case of the Philippian brethren, obviously this letter, not the scathing rebuke he had to write to some other congregations, to some other groups, or in the case of Philemon that we studied a quarter or so ago, not even some other individual. 
But if it's the case that Paul doesn't see the like-mindedness, that he doesn't see all these things listed in their lives, then he's saddened by that. And he can draw himself back from it. Now look at the next one, verse 3. And this is another situation where the word let means an awful lot. Even though you see it's, it's italicized, it's, it is definitely could actually be in the text because of the way that the text boils out, not in this verse, but the next. He said, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem the other better than themselves. So the, the phrase that he uses here, let nothing be done, Paul is pointing an accusatory finger in this one. It's a command in the preceding verse. This is an assumption that this is happening. Now, did Paul have any idea what he's talking about? Just as we mentioned for some reason in chapter 1. Of, of course he does. One, inspiration. Two, situation. Paul is inspired to write these things. So if, he, if he's writing on you know, God's paper these things and saying you need to be or you need not do anything for strife for vainglory. You need to have a lowly mind. You need to esteem others better than yourself. He's making corrective action and inspiration is telling him to do that. But also situation. Remember this, this grouping of letters, and I mean by that the Ephesian letter, the Colossian letter, the Philippian letter, the letter to uh, Philemon, all of these letters are written somewhere around the same time frame, especially when you're talking about Philemon, uh, Colossians and Ephesians written probably within the same few week or few month period, possibly. Um, Paul is getting reports back on these individuals. He had a close relationship. He's already expressed in the preceding chapter, chapter 1 of Philippians. He has a close relationship with these people. He's been concerned about them. He's cared for them. He's had compassion on them for a long period of time. And by the time he's prepared to write this letter back, there's some situational evidence, I guess, that is letting him in on the fact that they're having some struggles. There are some difficulties. Or else, what's the need and what he's going to start with here in verse 2 specifically and travel through verse 11 to constantly drill into their minds, look, humility is tied to unity. And humanity is separate from that. Humanity doesn't naturally find humility to, to seek out unity. Humanity does back opposite. And the example he's going to give is, as you've read across this, I know already, no more than Christ. They need no more evidence than Christ. So he says, let nothing be done for strife or vain glory. That is glory that you think you're gaining that you really ain't gaining. You ever been around somebody? You may think, well, I'm around him now. But you ever been around somebody who... Because of the way, for lack of better terms, they boast and they brag and they use the word I, which, again, not accusing Paul, but him using it, uh, what did I say, 65 times in 45 verses, that you eventually get to a point where you just start thinking in your mind, you know, I'm sick of hearing about them. I'm sick of hearing them talk about themselves. I'm sick of them trying to draw attention. And most times you can make an assumption probably that, you know, they're trying to get glory for what they've done or who they are or what they have. I think what they have is going to apply even more when he talks about look not on the things of self. 
And you get to where your stomach turns over that. Are they really gaining any glory? No, their glory is in vain. Uh, similar to the situation, you'll remember this from the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, so Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. Chapter 6, the beginning part of it, about the first six or eight verses, hammer down on this as well. You start hearing Jesus during that teaching talking about individuals that when they pray, you know, they do it on the street corners. They do it to gain attention. They do it to get everybody to, to look at them and say, look how wonderful he is. Now, eloquently he prays. It goes a little bit farther down that page and starts talking about when you give. Don't, don't do that to be seen to men either. And then in the midst of both of those situations, I mean there in Matthew, Matthew chapter 6, he says, they, he says it twice, they have their reward. That is, all the, all the boasting and bragging they're doing, popping their proverbial suspenders, standing back on the street corner, running in inside of the tabernacle or the temple or synagogues, and throwing piles of money in, making sure that when it hits, it, it rings and rings around the inside of those big metal bins that they had there to cast those things in. All the attention they think they're getting, he basically says they had better enjoy that because that's all they're ever going to get. Because they're not getting the attention of heaven. And they're not only getting the attention they want. Paul, fast forward all these years, writes to these brethren and in some senses basically says, let nothing be done for strife. Don't do anything just to, just to get an argument started. Don't do anything for empty glory to try to get glory to yourself. And then additionally he says, but, contrast, in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other, the other better than themselves. Now, putting this in not just the context of what we read, but putting it back to an extent, back in its, its time text. And I mean by that time of writing, A.D. 62, 64-ish. Thinking about the, um, the society they lived in for the majority of things, especially the things he's talked about preceding verses chapter 1, and we'll talk about later on, latter part of chapter 2 and chapter 3. Humility was not necessarily a common practice. As a matter of fact, it was not a core value of many people in that day. A lot of the teachers, even in the religious side of things, and even outside of that, Old Testament that's faded in the New Testament, the scribes, particularly the Pharisees, who were the Pharisees trying to impress? They said God, but ultimately just each other. Ultimately, when you boil that down, and, and that's why they were such an, an aggravation, I don't know if they were aggravation, Christ used it for all of our benefit, but they were such, uh, they attempted to be such a thorn in the side of, of Jesus as well as Paul and, his, and all that were around him as well. Lowliness of mind was not a primary characteristic of, of people in that day. It wasn't even expected to an extent. It was actually more expected in that society, and this is kind of still Roman Empire-ish type of thinking, if you want to blame them for all of it. They, they weren't necessarily to blame, but that mindset at least existed then, it was really all about calling attention to self. It was all about drawing everyone's eyes toward you. And he said, don't do that. Just stop that. 
Stop uh, bringing on strife. Stop trying to receive vainglory. But instead, back opposite, in lowliness of mind, let him each esteem others better than himself. I don't know exactly all the uh, attributes of the word esteem from the Greek to discuss, but in the English, just as you read it, what seems to be, it's not the root word, but what sounds like the root word right here? Esteem. What's steam? Well, you put a pot on the stove and fill it with water and let it boil up and you have steam. And steam always rises. Steam always tries to come up. And so he's basically saying, don't let anybody try to lift themselves. Especially in the context we're about to get to, especially if that individual is trying to lift himself in some way above anyone else. Not only someone else, but anyone else. How is that possible? Here's the key to not having that mindset. Verse 4. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. So according to that, and what we'll see in a moment, who comes first? We know God. Take God and move Him over. Not move Him over. Not move Him out, but move Him over. Come down the ladder a little bit. Who comes first? Others. Others. You ever seen, well, I know you've seen it. It's been around for I don't know how long, but you sometimes don't think of it. At least you have to remind yourself. The acrostic joy. What Paul just said, you know, fulfill you my joy. Joy, we oftentimes take that acrostic. We say that means Jesus, others, and then you. And if those things get out of order at all, Unity doesn't exist. Unity doesn't, it doesn't carry itself like it should. And so he says, don't look on the things of yourself. Look on the things of others. Have the right mindsets what the next section is going to be a part. When the needs of others are met, the needs of self will oftentimes file suit. Just universally, Maybe not specifically, but universally, when the needs of others are met, the needs of self will generally file suit. And that can come out a lot of times in the physical things of life, as you know, in other areas as well. So let not a man esteem or let him esteem others better than himself. Now, if you want to put a divine commentary beside this, and, and Coach Stevens brought this up last week, he at the end of class, a lot of times he'll walk down. He's a lot of times leading singing about 50% of the time at least. And he walked down and he made a comment. If you want to see the divine commentary, not just on what we're reading right at the moment, what we're going to read down through verse 11, just write in your Bibles, in your margins, or in your minds, Romans chapter 12, 3 and following. I think that goes down to verse 11, but you can check, check that for yourself. But at least Romans chapter 12, 3 and following. And that whole description there in the Roman letter, Paul, of course, pinning that by inspiration, he goes into really divine detail of how the church is able to function because every person or member, specifically says in it, has their own role. They've got their own, own deal of what they do, but none of them are more important than the next. 
And I illustrated that just a month or two ago with the situation of the chocolate cake in the fellowship hall and how important it is that everyone does what their, you could call it duty, but fulfills whatever their talent is, whatever their abilities are in the church, and therefore the church is able to function as a complete whole in the body. And that's similar to what we're about to get into. Verse 5. He commands on them this, let. And again, that's not a suggestion. It's similar to the word let from verse 3. However, I pointed out verse 3, the first word of it, let is italicized. It's not there. It is here in this verse. That's why it's uh, potential for verse 3. But he says, let, verse 5, let this mind. What mind is that? Read it backwards. Let this mind, what is that mind? The mind that esteems others higher than itself. Let the mind that is lowly, let the mind that is not filled with vain, or seeking vainglory, let the mind that is not trying to commit to strife, let the mind which is of one mind, which is of one love, which is like minded, which is a part of the mercies which is a, six, a part of the fellowship, which is a part of the love, which is a part of the consolation that is found in Christ. That's straight back up the page, easy as peasy. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. What do you say, Paul? Paul says, here comes the primary example of what you need to know. What was Christ's character like? John 13 is one of the records in which we find it. What was Christ's character like the night before his crucifixion? He committed his will to his Father. Yes. And what did he do a few hours before that? He submitted his will to fellow man. He's there. I mean, I, I don't know how you picture it. I can assume you picture it the same as I do. I would assume Christ is not standing up in a chair, leaning over to the floor, washing feet. We know he wasn't. He girded himself. He gets down. He gets beneath these disciples. Now, whether they were sitting high or lower, anyway, he puts himself in a position beneath the disciples, in a position uh, not just physically, but mentally, emotionally, beneath these disciples to wash their feet, which is just a precursor to what he said what he would do to God in, in the next hours before his impending doom and death, submitting to the will of God. And so he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. The mindset of esteeming others higher than ourselves. Now, even without the next few verses, but they're a part of it, if every person, not just in a congregation, obviously it's a primary uh, aspect to us, but if every person in the world, maybe no possibility, no potential, but if every person in the world woke up every day and said, how can I help somebody? How can I serve someone else? If there's any disunity, I guess it would be because somebody, you know, some, maybe people would argue about, well, I tried to do that for you and you did it for me first. I don't know. But if we were selfless instead of selfish, 
How will the world change? Or, in other words, Christ's life. Verse 6. Who being in the form of God thought it not robbery. Now the King James is a little, uh, I guess you'd say squirrely on this. There, there, it's not wrong, but uh, there are other translations a little bit more clear. But who being Christ it refers to. Who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal to God. So what's the mindset of Christ? Well, I think it backs up the page, but it still spills to the bottom. The first thing that he says about Christ and about his mindset is, even though he was in the form of God, he didn't think it was robbery to be equal with God. How are other ways to say that? Some translations say here in verse 6 that Jesus himself did not think being God was something to be grasped. Some translations say something to that effect. He didn't think it was something to, to grab hold to, and especially not something to be proud for or to be boastful about. You know, I, I, there, there was no possibility of this, but think about a, a Jesus that walked around the city streets and said, did you see that? You see that fella? You see him up walking around. You know who did that? I'll tell you who did that. Did you see that grave open a while ago? You know who did that? See the blind man that's going around and, and he's, he's amazed by what he sees in front of him and the people that are in front of him now that, that formerly looked like trees, now suddenly they, they, he's enjoying. You see who did that? He never did such. Never did such. As a matter of fact, there were many times when he healed people specifically. And the first thing out of the gate that he wants to let them know is don't go tell nobody about this. Now, there was a lot more purpose to it than just him not wanting to be boastful, obviously. A lot more intent. But there were specific times when he would perform miracles and then turn and basically not even try to get any credit or to get any attention drawn to himself. Why is that? Because he did the miracles by his abilities as God. And he's living in human form. And he's not trying to grasp that. And I think there's a direct relationship to the understanding. And this may not be the divine commentaries I refer to it. But a relationship to this understanding can be found in Romans chapter 12. Um, three and, no, that's not right. Romans chapter 5, 12 and following. Where Paul puts forth the discussion about... The, the Adam and the way that Adam was and the way that the, it's like there was the one Adam, there's the one Christ and the, for the purposes that they fulfilled and such. And the comparisons and the contrast that he made between what he called the first Adam and then now this one Christ. You see, Adam, when Adam saw the potential, at least according to the devil, now whether or not this was the case, I would probably assume not, but at least according to what Satan told Eve, if you eat of this fruit right here, you're going to be what? You're going to be like God. You're going to know what God knows. Now, I think in the fact that they ate it and they didn't become gods. Now, they acted as a god for themselves because they served themselves in that moment. But they didn't become gods. But the devil presented it in such a way. Eve's choice, ultimately Adam's choice was, I'll take some of that. I'll, 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 that'll be great. 
What's Christ's choice? He is God. And he never denied being God, but he also never used being God to his personal advantage. I think there's a lot more to be said about that as well. So we'll drop a peg right there and come back there in verse 6 and talk more about the phrases. And I want you to be taking a look at that. Look closely if you can and got some access to mainly electronic devices. But look closely in verse 6 to a few words. King James speaks being, meaning he was and always was. Look also at the word there for um, form. He's in the form of God. And I think that will help you in trying to develop all this out in your mind. Thank you for your attention.